Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. So much going on in the world this week. I have done nothing but sit in the house and watch films, even though it is very, very, very beautiful outside. The downside of that is that LA is the hotspot of the state that's a hotspot, of the country that's a hotspot. So it being 80 degrees outside means everyone is outside, and that is not very good during a global pandemic. So I haven't done shit. I haven't even been to the pool in my building because that's crowded too. I've been in the loft with the balcony doors open. That's a bright spot. But I've been in the loft watching an unprecedented number of films. We'll talk about some of them later. There's actually some really good stuff out right now. DC looks like a federal prison. You know, sometimes I say that I wish I was in DC. Which when I say that, I think people are like, oh, she wants to go gallivanting. I really just want to be able to walk around my parents' neighborhood without a mask on. That's really it. Living in a building, I have to put on my mask before I can even open my apartment door. When I'm in the suburbs, I can at least go walking around the neighborhood and get fresh air without a face covering on because there's literally no one outside. That's all I really want. That and to like go to Target and wander the aisles with a mask on, but no real threat of harm because the stores are so empty. That is never the case in Los Angeles. But I'm actually glad that I'm not home because D.C. looks like looks like a gigantic federal prison. When I drive to the post office, I don't go every day anymore. I go twice a week now. But there is a prison not so far down the street from the post office. And it is surrounded by really high fences and tons of barbed wire. Those fences and that barbed wire that are all over D.C., that's, that's exactly what it looks like surrounding that prison. And then for D.C., you add 25,000 troops, which when I was watching the news, they said that's more troops that are in Afghanistan right now, which I hate seeing my city look that way. But it's necessary for security and to keep the domestic terrorists at bay. It's really sad and scary I didn't realize until sometime yesterday that the traditional inauguration at the Capitol was still happening. I figured that everything that was going on, especially with COVID and then with these huge threats of domestic terrorism from from crazed and entitled white people, I thought that given the huge security threats that some sort of alternate inauguration would be happening. But nope, they're planning to go along with the usual inauguration sans the large crowds. So, hmm, I wish them the best. I'm actually very nervous about the 20th. I think with the heightened security presence that things might not be as bad as they could have been, but I rule nothing out when it comes to Trump and his minions. Speaking of terrorism... There's new video that's circulating about that capital seize from a couple weeks ago, not even two weeks yet. But there was a war correspondent from The New Yorker who was in the crowd and he went with the crowd into the Capitol. And he has harrowing footage, even worse than everything else that we've seen, of what was going on in the Senate chamber and throughout the halls of the Capitol. This one's not so much as violent 
It's just the entitlement. Like you've got people wandering into the Senate chamber and sitting in Mike Pence's chair and and rifling through through the desk of the Senate members, just casual, unbothered. And it's it's scary in its entitlement. I'm I'm black in America. I don't know what it's like to live that way without any sense of fear to think that everything I survey is my domain, that no harm can come to me, no consequence can come to me. I, I don't know what that feels like, but it's it's scary to watch people behave that way. Like you you're not afraid of anything. And what was also really scary was to watch the way that the police interacted with them. You know, much ado has been made about the video of of the police officer who's seen running from the mob. And then we found out later, we talked about him last week. We found out that he was actually being tactical, that he was leading the mob away from the unguarded doors of the Senate chamber. And there were still senators inside. And that would have been disastrous had he not been as quick thinking and as intelligent as he was. But in, in this new video, these guys are on the Senate floor and there's a cop and he's pleading with him. He says, can you please not do that? Can you please come down? There's another guy who has been shot in the face with some sort of plastic, but he's on the floor and he's bleeding. And the officer goes over to him and he says, hey, are you OK? Do you need medical attention? Can I help? And the guy says, no, I'm OK. But I was like, I, I can't imagine that happening at a protest where there are black people for any reason. And I certainly can't even imagine it over the summer at the Black Lives Matter protest when most of the people protesting were white. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Hey there. Hey, do you, hey, do you maybe think you can stop that? Do you maybe think you can come down from there? Okay, guys, that's enough. Okay, like you, you're in sacred space now. You've taken your pictures. Like, okay, let's move on. So kind, so compassionate, so, so respectful. And I just think that's so crazy. I mean, people have said this many times before. I'm not the first to make the observation. But these same police officers that that shoot so quickly when it comes to black bodies and have no de-escalation skills when it comes to encountering black people have all the, the patience, compassion, and time in the world when it comes to domestic terrorists who have breached the halls of Congress. And another thing I thought about, like watching these guys like sit in, in the Congress people's chairs or, or meander through the balcony or, or sit in Pence's chair. Years ago in college, we were asked to watch this film, Birth of a Nation, 1915, D.W. Griffith. It's considered, I think, the first modern feature film. It's racist as fuck. It's an imagining of what would happen if black people were treated equally as whites. And in one of the scenes, it's black people go to Congress and they're pictured as buffoons. They don't know how to behave. They have no respectability. They're just in there acting like the worst of minstrel characters. And and it's a minstrel show. All the black characters are portrayed by white people in blackface. It's this reimagining of like, see, this is what happens if we give black people equal rights, if, especially if we give them the vote. They're too ignorant. They're too stupid to know what to do with it. And I bring that film up to say that that's what I thought about, like watching these New Yorker videos of these terrorists, like wandering the halls of Congress. Like they look and act like the racist depictions that they made of black people. And I just thought that was ironic. Maybe 
Is ironic the right word? I don't know. But I've been thinking about that concept a lot lately. Like America has always positioned its greatest threats as black people were supposed to shoot up everything. And then Muslims are supposed to bomb everything. And then Mexicans and brown Latinos were stealing everybody's jobs. And that's why white people didn't have money. That's always been positioned as the greatest threat to America. But the reason that D.C. looks like a federal prison is white people. White people stormed your Capitol. White people ran up in the Capitol with the intent of of taking Congress members hostage and hanging the vice president. If anything's a threat to democracy, it's that. It wasn't us. And by us, I mean all the people with melanin. We've always been demonized in this country as this huge threat. And and if we don't control them, if we don't keep our foot on their necks, then they're just going to go crazy and they're going to sink the battleship. Then no, the biggest threat to American democracy is white people. That's crazy. The other crazy thing about that video is like, these guys genuinely thought that they were doing the right thing. Like many of them have been arrested and many of their excuses so far have been, well, Trump told me to do it. The president told us to come here. And then the president told us to to come to the Capitol and fight. And I was like, oh, they're just saying that is a good defense. But then watching them on video, like as it's going on, like they're saying like, you know, Ted Cruz would want us to do this. Oh, yeah. Trump wants us to do this. Trump would be proud. And I'm like, oh, y'all are really that stupid. Trump was telling y'all that there was election fraud. And despite like four counts in Georgia, the regular count and three recounts, and then the 60 some odd court cases to try in some form or fashion to overturn the election, like 60 some odd court cases that got thrown out. The Supreme Court wouldn't even hear the case. And y'all still believe Trump when he said there's fraud. You so wanted to believe in this man that you overlooked facts and logic laid out before you. And you went and committed federal crimes that are going to land your ass in prison for who knows how long believing this man. And you deserve every bit of it because please believe if Obama had said, you know, go do some dumb shit and I ran up in the Capitol, I'd be dead. I'd be stupid and I'd be dead. But no one would have empathy for me. They would have been like, she's a terrorist. Whether I was affiliated or not with BLM, they would have said that's who I was representing. They probably would have thrown Antifa on me too. Which, by the way, Antifa is anti-fascist. It's so weird how these like Trump Republicans and Trump himself keep talking about like Antifa, Antifa, Antifa. And I'm like, are we not all against fascism? I don't understand why we're not all members of Antifa. But these guys really believed everything that Trump said, and they put it all on the line for him. Trump allegedly has a hundred or so pardons that are coming down the line. The news outlets have not seen the list yet. That's just according to sources. They said there's some high profile rappers on the list. I'm a guess that one of them is Lil Wayne, who endorsed him right before the election and just so happened to be facing a federal gun charge. I'd be pissed if I was Wayne and I wasn't on that list. I do wonder if he's going to pardon any of these protesters. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I think it would also be grossly unjust to co-sign people storming the Capitol and wanting to hang your vice president and then pardoning them like they didn't do much wrong. It sets a horrible precedent. It okays it. It gives people license in the same way that when people stormed the Capitol in Michigan and nothing much was done about it. 
the same way that months later people turn around and storm the Capitol. And then it'll be like, really? It wasn't that bad. Like, we should just move on. Move on. The way that Trump's followers, Trump's minions are reacting to the storming of the Capitol, the insurrection at the Capitol, the breach of the Capitol, is so much like an abusive relationship. It's like you find out somebody cheats on you and they'll be like, okay, yeah, it happened. You still mad about that? Like what in the gaslight? You pretending that what you did wasn't wrong or you pretending that, yeah, I did it, but it's not a big deal doesn't make it not a big deal. You stormed the damn Capitol. And then like a week later, they're just like, yeah, we should just move on. Like we really just need to be focused on unity. How do we have unity with, with no recognition of wrongdoing, no accountability, no consequences And how are we supposed to move on from something like that in like 10 days? Really, they started on day three with the move on. I'm just like, wait, wait, is the building even cleaned up yet? Jimmy Kimmel had a really good take on this. Let me read it to you. Quote, I'm all for healing, but before we heal, we need to make sure the surgery is finished. There's a large cancerous tumor that still needs to be removed. I thought that was very apropos. They're just like, move on, move on. I'm just like... How? D.C. looks like a federal prison and there's 25,000 troops occupying the city. That was a big deal. That's not just something you just move on from. I really can't wait until the new administration is in office. I really hope that this Biden-Harris inauguration goes off without a hitch. And that when they get into office, like they hit the ground running so we can get vaccines, so we can get some economic relief. So we can just get some decency and order and full sentences. It's the little things. Speaking of Kamala Harris, she's been doing the chat rounds. She had her first sit down with husband Doug, a.k.a. the first second gentleman. They're really, really cute together. They're super cute. During their sit down, they were talking about how they met. They were actually hooked up by a mutual friend. They had a first phone call. And it lasted for hours. They felt like they'd already known each other. They had great chemistry. She was in San Francisco. He was an entertainment attorney in L.A. And he said, well, you know, if you're ever here and in the city, as it would turn out, Kamala Harris was going to be in L.A. shortly. And they met up and had dinner. So Mr. Doug very much enjoyed the Kamala. And he said that the morning after their date, He sent her an email with his list of availability for the next four months, including long weekends. He said, I was too old to play, quote, hide the ball, and I wanted to see if we could make something work. I thought that was so cute. I was like, come on, gentleman Dougie. Come on, Dougie. So cute. I say this all the time. Interested men act interested. I've written two whole books about relationship advice. I've answered over 60,000 questions from people seeking relationship advice. And always my answer boils down to either interested men act interested or find the lid for your pot. It makes things so much easier. I'll also say this. If you have to wonder if someone is interested, they're not all that interested. If you throw the ball to most men, they'll catch it just because it's easy. And there's a vast gray area between you'll do and I'm actually trying to build with you. So if you're just looking to date, 
Just enough interest is just fine. However, if you are looking for a commitment of any kind, you need someone where you don't have to guess if they are interested. Now, they might not do like Mr. Dougie and send you their four-month itinerary, but they will do something to let you know that they are interested and they are not fucking around and they want to get to know you. Also, interested men are happy to do the work to get you interested. There's this idea that like men are lazy and men don't make effort and men don't communicate. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. They make that effort for women that they're really interested in. The guy that can't be bothered to text you back, who leaves you on read. If it was a woman he was interested in, he's texting her back. He's calling. He's asking to see her. He's asking when he can take her out. He's coming up with creative ways to see her in the middle of a pandemic. He'll have plans later that he cancels so he can sit up in that woman's face. That's what people do when they're interested. People, not just men, but the same way that you act when you're really interested in somebody because you're interested in them. That's a human trait. That's not a woman trait. Men do the exact same thing when they're interested. Hmm. What else is going on? Don Lemon is openly black. White people be using some interesting phrases. Dan Abrams from the website Mediaite. He wrote a piece called Don Lemon's Remarks About Trump Voters and the Klan and Nazis Are a Slap in the Face to 74 Million Americans. That's a long headline. Despite the headline, the piece is actually praising Don Lemon for saying that Donald Trump supporters are on the same side as Nazis and other alt-right supporters. However, the article is describing this commentary between Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo. Cuomo leads into Lemon, and between the end of Chris's show and the beginning of Don's show, they have this little banter with each other, which I'm like a CNN junkie. So I look forward to their little banter every night. But in describing the banter between Lemon and Cuomo, the writer, Tommy Christopher, quote, Don Lemon, who is openly black, responded by telling Cuomo that if you are on that side, you need to think about the side you're on. The fuck is openly black? Like, I get openly gay because that's something you can, like, not disclose. But, like, openly black, like, visibly black, which is also a weird thing to say because no one's questioning Don's blackness. Why didn't he just say, like, Lemon, who is black? Why openly black? It's so confusing. Don Lemon thought it was funny. He picked up on some tone in the article that I didn't see. I thought it was very straightforward. I don't get it. Openly black. Am I openly black? What's the opposite of openly black? Are you closed black? Like, is this like people who are passing? I don't know. That's so strange. Mm, I don't know how I got this far in the podcast without talking about this. Did y'all see Ply's new teeth? He looks wonderful. I was scrolling through Instagram and I kept seeing this picture and I didn't know who it was. It was a nice looking man, but I had no idea who the man was. And maybe like after half a day of scrolling at this man sitting in his car, I was like, well, well, let me find out who this man is. Cause like, did he die? Did something happen to him? Only to discover that this unrecognizable man is Dan Plaz. He took his gold teeth out and looks like a whole nother human. I I was in awe. He's he's nice looking. I have never looked at Plies and thought like, oh, that's a nice looking man. Lo and behold, very much so. 
Look, I remember when I was talking about getting braces, which if you listen to the podcast, I don't think I gave you an update on that. The day after the podcast where I said I was thinking about getting braces, I had an appointment with my orthodontist and I thought it was just like a look-see and then, you know, make a decision and you'll come back later. And so she was like, yeah, you could do it. And I was like, well, when can I do it? And she was like, you want to do it today? And so between you want to do it today and like 30 minutes later, I had braces. So I've had braces for five weeks now. I have to keep them on for nine months or so. But I remember when I was talking about them or right after I said on social media that I had gotten them, people were like, why would you get braces in your 40s? Because my teeth were fucked up. I'm just supposed to leave them fucked up? I guess some people would. But but looking at plies, please don't ever ask anybody why they go and get their teeth fixed. Your teeth make a huge difference in your presentation. A good set of teeth can take you up a couple notches. I've been seeing Ply's face for what? Like the last, I would say easy 15, 20 years. Never and never part of life have I ever looked at him and thought, wow, he's a really nice looking guy. I posted his picture on my Instagram page. I called him hashtag snack ministry. That's how cute he is. He ain't do nothing else but take out his gold teeth and get some new teeth. He said when he took out his goals, he saw his mama and she said, quote, I finally got my baby back. He also said, and I was like, sir, you know, you lying. He said that he, uh, with his gold teeth, he had, um, pleasured a lot of women in his day. And he said, with his new teeth, (laughs) he not putting his mouth down there no more. (laughs) He's such a fool. But look, I tell you, I saw that man's teeth and I was like, yo, sir is out here looking like amazing grace. Looking like change me, oh God. (laughs) Looking like God provides. (laughs) Looking like he praised him in advance. (laughs) I'm so tickled by his teeth. (laughs) That man took out his gold. He looks like a whole new person. And he's 44. Which I thought he looked every bit of 44 of his gold teeth. He took the teeth out. He looks like a man in his 20s. When I tell you teeth will change you. Teeth will change you. I never thought I'd see the day. I ain't seen a glow up like this since Gucci. I know people are like, really? You're doing a whole segment on Ply's teeth? Yes. Yes. When people decide to do better with their lives, when they make a positive change, they need to be encouraged. Because this is not just a physical change. Plaz has had a mindset change. Something is happening within him where he is trying to uplift. And I want to support him. I mean, good for him. I really genuinely mean that. Good for him. I told you I hadn't done anything for like the last few days but watch a bunch of TV. And I wanted to talk to you about two really good films that I saw. One of them being American Skin with Nate Parker. I talked about the film coming out and the premise of it a couple weeks ago. I hadn't seen it, but it was getting great buzz. Spike Lee had come on as a producer, and I was excited about the film because it looked like a black person's revenge fantasy. This seems to be Nate Parker's genre, like because he gave us Nat Turner first, which, I mean, that actually happened. But to put it on film is, you know, essentially watching a black person's revenge fantasy. Like, oh, you've enslaved me, and now I'm going to wake up one day and kill you all. Should we think about sometime? Um, In this case, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm not going to tell you anything that you can't see in a commercial. But in this case, a father loses his son to police violence, and the father enacts revenge. 
He takes over a police station and he literally holds court where he puts the officer who killed his son on trial for the murder. And the officer is judged by a jury of peers that look more like Nate Parker than they do the officer. It is a powerful film. It goes there. That mystical, magical place where people say things that you never expected them to say and get really honest about what they think. It's kind of like, there was this movie a while ago, I want to say like the 80s or the 90s, 12 Angry Men. It was about members of the jury discussing a case and they all come from these different perspectives. And it's something like that. You get the jury's perspective and then you get Nate Parker's character, his perspective, and then you get the police officer's perspective. And there are different perspectives within the police department. You get a black teenager from the suburbs, you get his perspective, but it's all these different people talking about why police violence exists and how they feel about it. It's really, really, really good. It's really good. I highly encourage you to watch it. The ending is not what I expected. I really thought it was going to be something else, but it was very, um, hmm, if I say that, I might give it away and I don't want to do that. A lot of people have had much chat about the ending. So maybe we can discuss it in a couple weeks when everyone's had a chance to see it. I don't want to ruin it, but I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's a really, really good film. I do not expect that it will get Oscar buzz. Even though it's a really good film and Nate Parker gives an amazing performance, he's a really good actor. Just because I feel like it's too much truth for white people to handle. It's a lot of truth. It's a lot of truth about black people, too. We are not a perfect group. We do have shortcomings that need to be addressed. Um, But this film, it really went there. One of the black teenagers, a boy, his emotions are so raw and it's, I think it's the voice of, I think, probably every black person, every black person who feels connected to black culture, a black community. But I think it's what all of us are thinking and feeling when you hear the latest story of a black person, man, woman, child, who's been gunned down by the police. I'll tell you this part because it's happened so much in real life, it's probably not a surprise. But in the wake of of a child's death, a police officer goes to the family and they ask the family to make a statement to stop the violence. And the teenager just goes off. And I've said something about that on here before. I'm like, God forbid, if something should ever happen to me, do not call for peace in my name. If there's a city on fire, let the bitch burn. Let it burn to the goddamn ground. Like if I'm not going to get justice in a courthouse, like let there be justice in the street somehow, but do not call for peace in my name. And the kid just goes off and, and kind of explains why that's just a stupid thing to ask black people for. It's a really good movie. I also watched, do I want to tell you about that? It's not very good. I'm going to skip that one because my boo was in it. Damson Idris, you know how I feel about Damson Idris. Still haven't run into him in L.A., It's a global pandemic. But still, L.A. black community is only but so big. He's in a new Netflix film. He was great. The movie was terrible. It took me three times to watch it. I kept falling asleep. And it's an action film. And I'd love to see shit blow up. It just, it just wasn't a good film. The premise was off. And that's all I'll say about that. 
But the movie I really want to talk to you about is One Night in Miami on Amazon Prime. It's Regina King's directorial debut, much anticipated. It is a fictional portrayal of a night in Miami where singer Sam Cooke, football player Jim Brown, Malcolm X, and boxer Muhammad Ali all get together. It's under the guise of celebrating Muhammad Ali becoming the heavyweight champion. But really, it's like a therapy session with really good friends where people stop being nice and start getting real. Malcolm X was a little too real. I mean, mission accomplished. But he went so hard on poor Sam Cooke. I was like, Sam Cooke ain't that bad. Jesus. But it's a really good film. And I'll be honest with you. I had some trepidation about the film. Not just because it's a first for Regina King. I I wondered what would inspire a black woman in Hollywood to choose her first film as one that's about four men. Four iconic men, yes. Why not pick something that speaks to the experience of black women? So I did wonder that. So it's a slow start of a film, but once it gets going, I was like, oh, this is good material and I want to do something with it. So I totally get it. And I'm not going to give this one away either, although I will say there's not much to give away. The film is based on real life. So some of the events that are spoken about, if you know the highlights of the lives of any of those four characters, then you kind of know how they end up. Malcolm X hosts a party to celebrate Cassius Clay's win. Muhammad Ali is still Cassius Clay. He hasn't come out yet to the press as being a member of the Nation of Islam. And it's, it's as dry as you would expect from a strict Allah-fearing married Muslim who doesn't drink, dance, or convert. It's four men sitting up in a room, mostly, eating vanilla ice cream, literally. But it ends up being a de facto therapy session. All of the men in the room are on the cusp of a change in their lives, whether they know it or whether they're willing to acknowledge it or not. And so they push and pull and, and taunt and inspire one another to live in their greatness. In this film, all of the characters are pretty much likable, except Malcolm X. You know he means well, and you know he has a point, and you know he's telling the truth, but he really comes off as a jackass for how he goes at Sam Cooke. And I might be saying that because I feel like maybe there's some Sam Cooke in me. Sam Cooke at this point in time has not written a change is going to come. He's still writing pop ballads. He's ghostwriting songs for white artists. He's making a shit ton of money. He's living in L.A. Like when he goes to Miami, he stays at the Fontaine Blue instead of the hotels where most of the black people stay. Sam Cooke is very Hollywood. At this point in his life, and he's just like, I live well, I make money, I date women, like my life is good, and I'm I'm not trying to do more. And Malcolm X, being who he is for obvious reasons, he was like, No, the black man's life is a struggle, and you have this gigantic mouthpiece, and you're not using it to its highest purpose. Like, do more. And Sam Cook is kind of like, I don't want to. I have this conversation with myself all the time because I feel like every time I do something, people are always like, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. And I'm kind of like, but I don't want to. If people put these expectations on me and by people, I mean, sometimes the people listening to this podcast or the people commenting on social media 
or even people in my real life. It's like, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And it's like, I have absolutely no fucking desire to do that. A lot of people don't like, no. And then I stop talking to them and they don't understand why. Whole nother story, but okay. But Sam Cooke likes wealth. And he likes white acceptance. I don't really give two shits about that. And he likes the trappings of fame. Yeah, I kind of like that. And Malcolm X just gives it to him like so, so bad. But it's a really, really good film. It's very theater-esque. And I thought that before I started reading about the film and realized that the screenplay is based on a stage play and the writer, Kemp Powers, wrote both of them. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. It's very dialogue and character driven. There's not a lot of plot per se. It's very cerebral. Most of the film takes place in literally one hotel room, but there's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of ideas thrown out and a lot of ideas challenged. It's just smart. It's very, very smart and well acted. I should say that too. Although the guy that's playing Malcolm X, I didn't buy him as Malcolm X. And I don't know, it's because we've seen so many people play like iconic versions of Malcolm X. And I'm thinking of Denzel Washington in X, obviously. I'm thinking of Mario Van Peebles. And then I'm thinking of the guy who played Malcolm X in The Godfather of Harlem. I can't remember the actor's name, but he plays an amazing Malcolm X. This guy's Malcolm X? I had to keep reminding myself that it wasn't Barack Obama. It was weird. He almost gets Malcolm but it's not quite there. And it's not a bad performance. It's just you've seen so many 10 performances that when someone comes in with an eight, they just, they're not knocking it out the park. Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton does Sam Cooke and he is amazing. He is absolutely amazing. He played the hell out of Sam Cooke. And I'm giving this away, but I can tell you what it is. And when you see it, it'll be a entirely different experience. Remember when I talked about small acts And there was a film in that series called Lover's Rock. And I talked about this scene and everyone's dancing to this song called Silly Games. And the song goes off and everyone keeps singing and they're rock and they're dancing on the floor. So you can hear the stomp to keep the beat. And then everyone sings along a cappella. It's like a 10 minute scene, but it's one of the most powerful scenes I've seen in cinema in a really long time. There's a scene like that with Sam Cooke where he's performing and the sound goes out while he's on stage and he gets the whole room to do the bass line for him. The whole room starts clapping and stomping in unison and Sam Cooke sings his heart out to them. I love black people in general, but I love black people in those communal moments where we just all fall in line together and no one ever has to say like, oh, we should do this. It's just one by one. We all just go into this, this good version of groupthink and we're just all connected through this one sound. It's an amazing, amazing scene. I got chills watching it. Um, but Leslie Odin Jr., he's, he's just absolutely amazing. I was reading in... I guess the LA Times, they were talking about shooting the film. And at the very end, he sings A Change Is Gonna Come, which is his signature song. It's unofficially the official song of the civil rights movement. But at the end of the song, he's in tears and there's one running down his face. And I was like, wow, it's great acting, great acting. And in the LA Times, they described that they shot six or seven takes of him singing that song. The, the water in his eyes and the tear running down his face was not scripted. 
he was pulling himself back together after singing that song. Another fun fact, in the film, the song is performed on The Tonight Show, which did actually happen in real life. It's the only time that Sam Cooke performed the song live. And that's partially because he was killed when he was 33. He didn't live long enough to keep performing it over and over and over. I think he only lived maybe like a year after he made that song. They, he performed the song on The Tonight Show and the footage is lost. So if you didn't catch that live, you've never seen it again. So they, they recreated that lost footage from The Tonight Show. I thought that was just an amazing piece of writing to include a detail like that. It's, oh, it's a really, really, really good film. I also didn't know a lot about Sam Cooke. I think I conflated his killing and Donny Hathaway's killing together. I thought maybe he died at like 50 or 60 something. I had no idea he was killed when he was 33. Allegedly, he was naked wearing one shoe and a suit jacket. Look up the story. It's fascinating. I, have, I also had to look up Jim Brown, too. I knew some things about Jim Brown. Like, my dad loves Jim Brown. I knew him as a football player. I knew he was in films. I knew he was, I knew he was an activist. I knew he was very open in talking about the, the plight of black folks. But I didn't know all of the details. So there's a detail in the film where it talks about Jim Brown wants to be a movie star. So in the off season from the NFL, he would go act in Hollywood. So I had to go look up some details about Jim Brown. <laughs> Jim Brown has a Shonda Rhimes story. Remember we talked about Shonda Rhimes, how she left Disney because one of the executives didn't want to give her a $154 all day pass to Disney. Jim Brown has a similar story. This is fascinating. So, and I'm reading this from the undefeated Ryan Cortez is the author, and he starts out talking about how in 1965, when the NFL season ended, Jim Brown was the star of the league. He was the 1965 MVP after rushing for 1,544 yards in a 14-game season. And I know nothing about football, so I was like, oh, is, is 1,500 yards, is that like a big thing? Yes. The second runner-up for that stat had 677 yards less than Jim Brown. So that's how good Jim Brown was. So again, at the end of the 1965 NFL season, Brown was the sports leader in single season and career rushing yards, rushing touchdowns, and total touchdowns. In nine years of pro ball, Brown was the rushing champion eight times and the MVP three times. I had to call my dad and was like, okay, is it fair to compare Jim Brown to Michael Jordan? My dad, bless his part, he knows I'm not into sports. He was like, well, Jim Brown was a football player. And I was like, oh, God, start over. Can I compare Jim Brown as a football player to Michael Jordan as a basketball player? And he was like, how do you mean? And I was like, in terms of when they quit, I was like, Jim Brown quit at the top of his game in the same way that Michael Jordan quit the first time. Like, it was very shocking from what I'm reading. And he was like, yes, that was very accurate. Like we were shocked when Jim Brown quit. So like I said, Jim Brown was at the top of his game, 1965 season, right? He's 29 years old, still had many more years left to play in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns. In the off season, he goes out to Hollywood. He's making great money, more than half his salary to shoot these Hollywood films. 
He's, so he's in London shooting this film called The Dirty Dozen. The project keeps getting pushed back for whatever reason, and it's creeping up to the time when Brown would have to return to training camp. Now, again, Jim Brown is the number one player in the NFL. Jim Brown reaches out and is like, hey, in the offseason, I made this commitment. I'm shooting this film. The dates are pushing up. I want to come back to play, but I need to finish out my commitment here. Can you work with me on this? The owner of the Browns is like, no, releases a statement. No veteran Browns player has been granted or will be given permission to report late to our training camp. And this includes Jim Brown. Should Jim fail to report at check-in time deadline, then I will have no alternative to suspend him without pay. Same owner said he was going to start fining Brown $100 for every day that he didn't show up. Also, to just put that $100 in perspective, Jim Brown was making $60,000 per year. It's 1965, so that's not bad money, but that's not even millionaire money. Jim Brown, the number one player in the NFL, did not take kindly to the owner's threat. He wrote him a letter. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'll start at the beginning, though. He said, Dear Art, first name, not last, Dear Art, I'm writing to inform you that in the next few days, I will be announcing my retirement from football. This decision is final and is made only because of the future that I desire for myself, my family, and if not to sound corny, my race. I was very sorry to see you make the statements that you did because it was not a victory for you or I, but for the newspaper men. Fortunately, I seem to have a little more faith in you than you have in me. I honestly like you and will be willing to help you in any way I can. But I feel you must realize that both of us are men and that my manhood is just as important to me as yours is to you. So Jim Brown quit while he was on the set of the Dirty Dozen wearing military fatigues while sitting in a director's chair placed in front of a tank. (laughs) This is how it was recounted. In Sports Illustrated, this is how it was recounted in Sports Illustrated at the time. Brown told Sports Illustrated, quote, I could have played longer. I wanted to play this year, but it was impossible. We're running behind schedule shooting here, for one thing. I want more mental stimulation than I would have playing football. I want to have a hand in the struggle that is taking place in our country, and I have the opportunity to do that now. I might not a year from now. And later this, I quit with regret, but not with sorrow. The Undefeated sums up Brown as, quote, one of the most revered and respected football players and activists in history. He went on to appear in some 44 films, including 17 lead roles. Y'all got to stop playing with black people who are out of fucks. Jim Brown was 29 and he was already fuck free. It took me until somewhere around... 38, 37, when I was just like, woo, ain't no more fucks left in the bag. <laughs> I remember I got an offer once. I'll be transparent about this. It was for my third book. I had created a proposal and I had sent it out and I got not so great feedback. The feedback was, you know, she hasn't written anything in a long time. You know, I know she writes on social media. I don't know if her audience will actually buy her book. Are they really invested in her or is she just popular for popular sake? I'd given my agent a number that I wanted for the book. 
And then I gave her the number that I would actually take. And she was invested in getting the highest number because she got a cut of the contract. So she came back and the number that she gave was maybe 30% of the lowest number that I had said I would accept. And and so I said, no, I'm not working for that. Are you, are you crazy? Like I self-published my second book and I made way more than that, like 10 times more. You know, people don't respect self-publishing the same way that they do a major label. So just say for just numbers wise, they pay you 100000 for a book contract, right? For that advance, they'll pay you in fourth. So you'll get that money over two years. So when you sign the contract, when you turn in the proposal, when the book is published, and then a year out from publication, especially if you have a hardcover. So when you do it in paperback a year later, you get another check. You're getting 50000 a year. If you sign a book contract in January for a major and it's not tied to literally a world event, it's going to be 15 to 18 months before that book hits shelves. Versus if you self-publish a book, you can decide on January 1st that you want the book to drop on March 1st. As long as you can get it to a printer slash distributor in six weeks, it can be available for sale March 1st. I personally wouldn't suggest anybody write a book of any kind of length in two months. It takes longer than that to put good material together. A couple people can do it. Most can't. That said, you don't have to sell as many copies. You can sell 7,000 copies of a self-published book and make $100,000 net. And if you have a built-in audience, you can easily sell 7,000 copies of a book in less than a month. You can do it in a week or less. Do it in a day. All depends on whether your audience reads or not. And I learned that when I was working in publishing. When I was in publishing over 10 years ago, it was the rise of street fiction. A lot of those authors pitched their books to mainstream publishing houses and they were not thought of as good writing because of the, um, the lifestyles that were being described. Some of the writers had very good plots, but they weren't necessarily the greatest writers. And so many of them were X'd out of traditional publishing. And so they went the independent route and they were, they were publishing their own books. And at the time, if you would look at the reviews and the awards and the sales, the reviews of books were always very positive for the authors that were published on mainstream places. And the awards often went to the authors that were published in mainstream houses. But the sales numbers, by far, always went to the street-lit authors with independent publications. So my first book, A Bell in Brooklyn, got a cute contract. My second book, Don't Waste Your Pretty, I self-published. So that is our episode of Ratchet and Respectable. Just as a reminder, there is Ratchet and Respectable merch on the site. I was able to get in a few more pieces in various sizes, so I added those to the site already. Hopefully they are not snatched up by the time you hear this podcast. Oh, and the website, DemetriaLLucas.com. I officially announced my film, Don't Waste Your Pretty, on social media over the weekend. I'm going to tell you about that film at some point during every single episode of Ratchet and Respectable leading up to the film because I want you to tune in. It still just doesn't feel real yet, even though like I watched the whole film. like It's still like, this is somebody else's project. This isn't mine. But yet, there's my name, and there's my book. And oh shit, there's my face. I'm in the film. If you'd also like some Ratchet and Respectable in your life between now and Friday, you are welcome to follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas. 
Okay, that's everything. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will talk again on Friday. Okay, bye.